Hello, everyone, and welcome to the Hellboy Book Club. My name is John Salinas, and I'm here with... Aubrey Loveless. I'm Danielle. Hey, everybody. We're an all-Hellboy podcast. We're reading all the Hellboy comics. And this week, I'm going to have Aubrey tell you what what we're doing over here. Go ahead, Aubrey. You do it. Here's what we do. We're going to read a book, <laughs> and then we're going to talk about the book, and we're going to tell you to read the book, and then you're going to write in next week and tell us what, re- what we read, what your thoughts on what we read, and then uh, we'll... <laughs> tell you how to read that too uh not how to read that what to read you can read it any way you want uh but uh <laughs> you know upside down with uh you know monkeys hanging out with you then you're gonna write it and tell us about that and then the cycle repeats until the end of time and that's book club back to you john ah and <laughs> friendship don't forget about the friendship friendship and love Thank you guys so much for everyone who has contributed to the GoFundMe that we are doing for the NAACP Legal Defense Fund. As of this recording, we've raised $1,116. Oh, wow. Yeah, so we've already wow. met the goal. You know, I put 1000 and that was like the minimum goal. Like, that's the default goal right. when you open up the thing. And last week, I was telling you guys I would be happy if we raised $100, you know, and we've raised so much more. So I'm really excited about that. But our work isn't over yet i still want to try and get more funds to this organization um, before our deadline of 7 7 2020 and so we're going to be adding some books to the giveaway i'm adding an abe sapien the drowning issue one this is signed by mignola this is a fantastic mignola cover that i personally had signed and although unsigned i have a kick-ass lobster johnson year of monsters variant cover this is the september one and it has the lobster and Frankenstein. So I'm going to add those to the giveaway. And Aubrey dug out some books. You want to talk about those books, Aubrey? Yeah, so I am going to be donating X-Factor Annual 6. Uh, that came out in 1990 uh, with a Maniola cover. It's the King of Pain Annual Crossover. That's a cool uh, one, yeah. And then also Fallen Angels number... Six. six. Yeah, so I'm donating the sixes. Uh, that is also a Mignola cover as well, which I actually didn't even realize that he had done that. That's an until, early one, yeah. Until I saw something on the um, Mike Mignola art page. Somebody had posted this catalog of like all these Mignola covers in like a foreign language, and then put one of them pictures, and it was Fallen Angels number six. And I was like, holy crap. I have that. Yeah, <laughs> that's a good one, too. I like that one. So thank you so much, Aubrey. I really appreciate that. Oh, of course. And Matt Strackbine is also contributing a signed issue from his collection. Matt has Hellboy the Three Gold Whips signed in gold ink by Mignola. He said it was a gift to him from his local comic book store. They gave it to him because he had taken out a half-ad page in the paper to promote an event at their shop after a flood wiped out the owner's personal collection. So Matt thought it was only right to have it go to another charitable event. So thanks so much, Matt. That is so great. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. Thank you, Matt. Yeah. This this is really exciting, and I'm really I'm glad to be part of this. But I wish I had something to contribute. I don't have any signed books or cool. Like I started reading because of y'all, because of this, and so I don't really have any thing to contribute hellboy related i I probably just kick in some cash before you send it off there you go NAACP. you know (laughs) just contribute monetarily but i'm really you know i'm really glad to uh even be associated with i feel very fortunate to know so many awesome people who are uh contributing to such an awesome cause and i think that's great and plus hey 
You could get some comics, get right? Some comics, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's been really incredible. And this just in, Ross Radke. Ah, book club member. He's going to be doing three three by four custom sketch cards, your choice of character. Hey. That's three separate prizes with the four that we had last week and the eight that we're adding today. That's 12 people that are going to get some cool stuff for just supporting an amazing cause. That's a really cool idea. That's that's awesome. Yeah. Like that. Wow. Thank you, Ross. Yeah. That's amazing. Yeah. Thank you so much. I just want to make sure that I can contact the winners. So check out an email from GoFundMe on july 7th 2020 for the announcement oh yeah that might go into some spam folders so watch out right for that. i'm probably going to also try and post a video for instagram story or something like that where i pick the random i'm probably oh, going right, to use yeah. like a random number generator or something like that you don't to write pick the, the numbers. things and pull them out of a box or something like that at this point there would have to be a thousand <laughs> over a thousand little things in a box you want to do that yeah i'll do it okay no i'm not gonna do that <laughs> That's really cool that you have so many people contributing to, like you said, it's a, a really worthy, incredible cause, and that's awesome. Yeah, I would like to say thank you to everybody who's donated. And, you know, and you guys are wonderful and generous, and thank you. And a lot of book club member names in there, I noticed. So thank you, much. Yeah. Thank you so much, all you guys. All the book club members. I also want to thank Vector Comics on Twitter for giving us a shout-out this week. And give us a review and all that junk. You know, that's the best way to give us some attention is retweet us or put us in your Instagram story and all that junk. You know, that's the best way to, like, bring other people into the book club. And so thank you so much, Vector Comics. And I also wanted to plug Old Haunts. This is Lawrence Campbell's new comic. It's from AWA Comics, and it just came out this week. I called my local comic book store bedrock city shout out to them bedrock gonna, city for a second i thought you were gonna say old honks i'm not sure why old honks because because yeah. you always you're always thinking about geese or something about, or, yeah no it's called old haunts old honks uh, apparently it's about <laughs> apparently it's about supernatural gangsters so that sounds awesome and that's definitely something that i'd like to see Lawrence campbell draw i just want to see him draw yeah, anything sure. yeah so yeah i already yeah. called uh called my comic book store i told them to put it on my box already awesome. put it on my subscription this wouldn't be a comic book podcast without mentioning denny o'neill you know rest in peace denny o'neill he's a very prolific and amazing writer he mostly worked for dc comics and he co-created a lot of characters including raz al ghul talia al ghul john stewart the green lantern Azrael, bronze tiger lady shiva hydro man leslie tompkins maxi zeus madam webb obadiah stain slash ironmonger and many more. And I stole that list from at comic book art on Twitter. They're a great resource on Twitter for comic book art. They post a lot of Mignola stuff too, so check them out. He also started writing Daredevil after Frank Miller's run. And you already mentioned uh, Hydro Man and Madam Web and Ironmonger. I wasn't was familiar a- with all those characters, and I looked a lot of them up, and a lot of them have been in like the shows and stuff like that. So a lot mm-hmm. of the characters that he created like have gone on to be like in movies and stuff like that, which I think is really cool. So I'm glad he got to see a lot of that you know before he passed did he write that one where green lantern is realizing that racism exists yes wow he did write that and there's this guy just like man you gotta fucking pull your head out of your ass dude he's like you've saved the purple man and yeah you've saved the yeah. orange man but what about the black yeah man? yeah yeah wow yeah, daniel o'neill wrote that wow man r.i.p to a real one he was also influential of bringing batman back to his roots from after the uh the adam west 60s campy stuff right right i at first when i you know had 
heard about like he passed. So I was like, oh, do I know this person? And then I talked to you for talked to you guys for like a minute and realized, yeah, wow, I actually do know <laughs> a lot of what this person did. So yeah, yeah, a lot of the classics you don't even realize. Yeah, yeah, but he lived like a long, fulfilling, awesome yeah, life. Yeah, sure so did. That's that's good. Yeah. That's yeah. really good. That's all you can really hope for. All right, and now we're gonna go on to our listener feedback. Get out, trades and floppies. Get out, hardback copies. Digital is fine. Read along in time. Get out. We had a hey you damn Norman Rockwell fans from <laughs> Matt Strackbine. Hey, Matt Strackbine. Hey, Matt, come back. We want you back on. Matt said, if the Paulo Rivera cover is an homage to a specific Norman Rockwell Saturday Evening Post cover, then it's this one that I've attached. And I put this in our post for the week. He said, I do not believe Rockwell had a Lost Dog-themed cover or painting, but I could be wrong. However, the white picket fence reminds me of a piece from the Young Love series called Walking to School. And I also posted that one in that little collage. The kids could have been cherry-picked from any number of post covers. Like the classic Marble Champs cover or something like The Day in the Life of a Girl. All in all, the artist does the job by practically convincing us readers that we've seen this somewhere before, or that Rockwell must have done something similar. That's a sign of a worthy homage. Kill the Black Flame, Matt Strackvine. Yeah, so thank you for that. Thanks for the research assist on those Rockwell pieces. I had fun um, looking up all those covers that you mentioned. We also had a Hey You Damn Guys from Hayden Orr. Hayden Orr. Book club member. Nice. He said, great episode this week. I was thinking about something you guys briefly talked about during this week's episode regarding the differences between wolfmans and werewolves. Wolfmans and werewolves, that's right. There is a difference. Continue. And so, <laughs> and so I didn't clog up the comments section with a long-winded post. I figured I'd type it all out here. Anyways, <laughs> that's, what that's for. Danielle is absolutely right about the taxonomy of werewolves in the Hellboy universe and in general. Thank you. A wolfman or a lycanthrope who retains mostly human features with a bit of a hairy face and claws exists in the Mignolaverse. We saw one in House of the Living Dead. They also appear to be based on the classic wolfman starring Lon Chaney Jr. from 1941. Yeah, for sure. And interestingly enough also created a lot of the tropes and lore we now associate with werewolves today, such as only silver being able to kill them and changing during the full moon. The other type that we've seen before are bipedal or quadrupedal, and we've seen them in the Wolves of St. August and BPRD Casualties, and they appear more like the monsters from The Howling or American Werewolf in London. They got a wolf face. I find it super interesting that just like the vampires we've seen in the Mignolaverse, the werewolves have a bit of variety to them. And that's just not talking about their physical appearance. We've seen what could be described as natural werewolves, magical werewolves, and even a man who just thought he was a werewolf. Remember Emile Bertrand, whose bones the Bog Rouge used to chain Hellboy? Oh, yeah. He thought he was a werewolf, right? Though that one may not technically count, he says. Even the mummies and the Frankensteins and the Mignolaverse have some variety to them if you look back at all the past stories. Anyway, sorry for droning on about this, but I just felt like talking about werewolves. Yeah, I read his comment and the first thing I thought of was, so that means Michael J. Fox was a wolf man. He was a wolf man. In the Teen Wolf. Yeah. Oh, you're right. And honestly, I got to say that I have always used the, the terms interchangeably. Ah, uh, they're uh, not, though. Uh, yeah. As you've and learned today. I have learned something new. <laughs> Thank you, Danielle. Thank you, uh, Hayden. Yeah, I think what Aubrey is meaning is that he didn't have a wolf face. No, he didn't. He just yeah. grew the, the... Right. Yeah. Did they call him a werewolf? I don't know. Or a wolf man? I haven't seen that movie since the 80s, so I, I have no idea. I used to yeah. love that movie. 
No. Well, I might have to do some research on that. Tell us what you thought of Teen Wolf. <laughs> Tell us what you think of Wolfman's and werewolves. Yes, thank you so much, Hayden Orr. That was an amazing bit of research. Yeah, good job. Back on our Weird Tales episodes, we had some cool art by Steve Parkhouse and Scott Morse. Nicholas Orzaga said... Nicholas Orzaga. Book club member. Book club member. Steve Parkhouse's resident alien from Dark Horse Comics is soon to be a sci-fi television series. The Omnibus comes out in August. So I wasn't familiar with that series. And he also mentioned Scott Morse, who we talked about in those stories. He said, his masterpiece, in my opinion, is Ancient Joe. If you like the island and Macoma-style wandering around Hellboy stories and who doesn't, then this one's for you. He said, I'm finally catching up after being the sole essential employee, in quotations, at my job for the last 10 weeks. Man, thank you so much, man. That sounds wow. rough. He says, the characters in the pinup by Steve Purcell are his characters Suda and Ernie. So, I don't know if you remember this, there was these group of pinups, and one of them featured Hellboy sitting alongside this character under a tree. And apparently those are those characters. He said, I think they first appeared in the Piranha Press comic, Fast Forward Issue 3, and then they also appeared in the Hellboy Christmas special. I gotta go back and look at that. I think Purcell was a classmate of Mignola's at the California College of the Arts. And yeah, I think Mignola has mentioned that Steve Purcell's like one of his best friends. So thank you so much, Nicholas. He also commented on the rare bit. Remember we talked about that? Purely for the nerd-to-know crowd, Dream of the Rarebit Fiend is a newspaper comic strip by American cartoonist Windsor McKay. Begun September 10th, 1904, the strip had no continuity or reoccurring characters, but a reoccurring theme. A character has a nightmare or other bizarre dream, usually after eating a Welsh rarebit. A cheese-on-toast dish, the character awakens in the closing panel and regrets having eaten the rarebit. The dreams often reveal unflattering sides of the dreamer's psyches, their phobias, hypocrisies, discomforts, and dark fantasies. And so that kind of goes along with that, my vacation in hell, all those weird yeah. vignettes and stuff like that. I really like that. So thank you for that research. And Ross Radke also mentioned the Rare Bit Fiend comic strip by McKay on Twitter. Oh, okay. He said, it's basically a guy having a weird dream after eating a Rare Bit. Visual playfulness similar to the weird tale. Yeah, so thank you guys so much for the research on that. I love learning all those different details of how Thompson got his inspiration for that. I thought it was such a neat piece, like all the woodcuts and all these different yeah. kind of things that he incorporated into that. And then Nathaniel Green even said, in A Christmas Story or something like that, Ebenezer Scrooge says a nightmare is unprocessed cheese, or he equates it to... People are having weird nightmares because they ate a cheese. Yeah. Like a grilled cheese. <laughs> I've never had nightmares after I ate a grilled cheese. <laughs> A cheese on toast dish. They weren't having the right kind of grilled cheese. Oh, they probably okay. had it. That's they toasted had bread a... with cheese on it. You ever have a weird dream after eating a... I've never had a weird dream after <laughs> eating a grilled cheese. We had, some, <laughs> we had some feedback on Hellboy and the BPRD, Rawhead and Bloody Bones. Hayden Orr said, Rawhead always reminds me of the Clive Barker story and movie Rawhead Rex, which deals with an ancient demon being reawakened in a small English town. The short story, which appears in Barker's Books of Blood, Volume 3, is really good. The movie, however, not so much, lol. <laughs> uh, 
And Paleo Bach also said, I would love to see them again somewhere in hell. That would have been cool if those characters would have been down there in hell. Yeah, that would be neat. I guess they could always always go back and do that. Um, Regarding the Kelpie, so when I made my little collage there of the different versions of the Kelpie, we had um, Paul from Gardaharn. He also commented this week about the Kelpie statues. He says he drives by them on the way home from work. Oh, wow. That is so cool. cool. Yeah. Thank you, Paul from Gardaharn. We love you, man. Um, it's, so, it's great whenever we get to hear from you. But in my little collage there, I had put a picture that I had got from Wikipedia, and the Griffin 88 said, technically that white one is uh, Bacahast, and I'm probably saying that wrong, the Germanic water horse, mythology nerd. But when I found that picture, I actually found it on Wikipedia, and it said the water horse is sometimes known as a Kelpie. Mm. So anyway, maybe I that's not technically correct. I do want to mention that correction. Regarding Wandering Souls, you know that uh, you cast Dan Aykroyd as the cop. Oh, yeah. And we were talking about how he even turns evil in Ghostbusters 2. Well, Haydenor said... Dan Aykroyd, cop becoming possessed, reminded me of a scene from the Twilight Zone movie where Dan Aykroyd actually turns into a sharp tooth monster. Oh, wow. And he posted the scene from it, and I was watching it, and I was like, what the fuck is this? Great. Yeah, but Dan Aykroyd, he's like, he's in a car, and he turns around, and then he's all evil, and he's got like the sharp teeth and everything. Well, did he do a good job? Yeah, it was pretty well, scary. There you go. Yeah, it's so only for I'm a little bit. This. Yeah. <laughs> have, well, me, cool. have me cast your next <laughs> uh, limited series coming to Netflix. James Dowling said, I like how we only see Hellboy smoke in 1953 when he's out on a mission like this. Whenever he was around broom or children, he wouldn't. Makes him seem like a bit bashful still. Yeah, that's a nice little detail. Or just like a thoughtful guy. First of all, you're not going to do that in front of your dad. Yeah. Second of all, not doing it around kids is kind of like a sign of respect for the kids and and all that sort of thing. So that's, he's just, he's A, he's a good guy and B, he's... Like many of us, he's not going to... There's just some stuff you're just not going to do around your parents. Right. (laughs) Yeah. I always made it a point to never smoke around children. Well, there you go. Yeah. Not that any kid would think I'm cool, but I don't... (laughs) But it's also like a respect thing. You know, they don't need to be around that because I actually grew up around people smoking. Well, like a health thing. They're little... Yeah, they're still still developing. Yeah. Yeah. And so, yeah, I mean, it was mostly like a health thing and... You know, it's just, if you're a smoker, it's the right thing to do to not smoke around kids. So we'll just take that as a sign that Hellboy is one heck of a guy. Yeah. Heck boy. Heck boy. Regarding Beyond the Fences, Nathaniel Green, he shouted out the Norman Rockwell cover. It's easily one of my favorite covers ever. And Goldie Box on Instagram also said this is my favorite cover by far. So yeah, that Rivera cover is amazing. Jerry Turnbull posted a really cool article from The Self-Absorbing Man. This is a comic book art blog by Paulo Rivera, the artist. So I thought this was really cool. And so if you check out this article um, or you, if you check out this blog post, it's got some really nice behind the scenes stuff. You can kind of see like Rivera, he posed as all the little kids, like handing papers up and stuff like that and took pictures of himself like that to be able to like draw. I thought it was really cool. Oh, so cute. yeah, check out that post. The self-absorbing that is awesome. man. Yeah. Jerry Turnbull also mentioned... Miss Fox, or Rahel Rebane, is a were-fox, literally. So remember, there was that teacher, and then she left, and then we saw this black-and-white wolf thing. So that is a Rebane. It's an Estonian fox. And it's also a play on words. She's a Russian silver fox. Yeah. 
So that's that animal that she becomes, and um, that's exactly what it looks like, which I thought was really cool. So thanks, Jerry, for pointing that to me. Thank you, Jerry. Book club member. Clayton Schofield said that Rivera's splash page is bonkers. The one where we have the flashback to 1948. Mark Tweedo mentioned he was like, you keep saying 1947. I know you mean 1948. <laughs> so yes, I, I did say that a couple times on the last episode. Clayton says, it freezes me every time. One of my favorite superhero artists to cross over into the Mignolaverse. A student of David Mazzuccelli. That's the guy that did Batman Year One, right? It doesn't get better uh, than yeah. that. Hope to see more from him on these books. All right, and now it's time to go to our, for some reason, reoccurring segment on the show. It's Bean Talk with Aubrey and the Gang. Yeah, yeah. Uh... <laughs> Bean Talk with Aubrey and the Gang. <laughs> Clayton Schofield said, first we talk about some beans and how you should eat them. Then you tell us about some beans and how we should eat them. Then we share some beans. Someone farts. We all giggle and friendship. Oh, man. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. It's pretty good. First so, of all, though, I would never <laughs> presume to tell someone how to eat beans or which beans to eat. Having said that, I have reversed my position <laughs> once back. more and have circled back to my original opinion, which is the beans on toast, as you have shown me, because you've the shown pictures, me some pictures. There, there were some pictures posted. Were you Jerry about to talk about that? Yeah. So okay, Jerry, Turnbull, go ahead. Jerry Turnbull posted that first one, which was the beans on the toast with the cheese on top. See, I had never seen this. He has to show me all this because I don't look at <laughs> the whatever the social media stuff i just he shows me this and i'm like that doesn't look like something i personally would be interested in eating okay but okay i actually commented on that and i was just like jerry that looks delicious there you go (laughs) so here's the thing with that is that's first of all it's barbecue beans i personally don't go in for that because it's like a i don't know no 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 no, those those are english english ones so you might like them it looks like it looks it doesn't look and it's also like wet on bread Mm. And that's the thing that really bothers that's me. That's what it's you like, don't look, like. If you're going to have beans, have a bowl of beans. If you're going to have bread, have some bread next to it. Take a spoonful of beans. Eat that. Take a bite of the bread. Yeah. You get your nice... <laughs> you get the beans part, but then you get the bread. I thought you said we weren't going to tell someone how to eat beans. I'm saying, okay, <laughs> look. This is an idea. You can take it or leave it. This is just an idea. You uh, would. You would. I'm not saying you should or, you know, I'm just saying you could. You know, conceivably, this is what you could do, is get a bite of not soggy bread instead of soggy bread. Okay. That's that's the part where you have the hang up. That's my hang up right there. See, I, I don't mind like soggy bread because, like, you know, I'll, like, dip bread in soup and then, like, eat it and I'll okay. eat bread. Sure. I'll eat bread straight by itself. You know, I, I'll eat it all. Look, Mar- we could talk about beans all day. Yeah. I've got lots well, of favorite beans. I'm just saying, this these pictures I have been shown, I'm circling <sighs> back to my original opinion. I don't think I would want to try that. Mark Tweedo said, whoa, in America, you have a completely different idea of beans on toast. What you're describing sounds horrific. It does, It's right? got sauce and stuff, and you mix in some cheese. I like to use raclette myself. Do you have jaffles in America? What the fuck is jaffles? But we used to have something like this when I was a kid. It's like a, it's like a waffle iron, but you put sandwiches in there, and it makes like pockets, like yeah. two little pockets. Yeah. And so they have the toast and the beans are in the pocket. Okay. What about that? Again. That's Jaffles, I Again, guess. I feel like, do these people not have bowls? <laughs> Put the beans in a bowl, have the bread on the side, take a nice, lovely bite of, of crisp, fresh bread of your toast, it's dry, and then have a spoonful of the beans. Okay. I don't know. Maybe I'm, maybe I'm weird. Maybe I'm the weird one. I'll cop to that. 
I'll cop to that and say I'm the outlier. And that's, okay. you know, maybe I have a weird hang up here and that's fine. When Mark said, your assumptions about what beans on toast are will give me nightmares. Oh, no. <laughs> I can't speak for the UK, but not, but in Australia, it's primarily breakfast food. If you order a big breakfast at most cafes, you get bacon, sausage, eggs, tomatoes, mushrooms, hash browns, avocado, and beans on toast. Right. And it looks super fancy. All I'm saying is the only difference is over here. The bread doesn't go underneath all that stuff. <laughs> it just comes on the side well, like everything else. It's all separated. I have this idea that the bread has been overwhelmed by the juice from the beans <laughs> completely, and it's just like completely soggy. So maybe I have this like miss. <laughs> I have this misconception, you know, where the ratio of bean juice to bread is probably incorrect and maybe it's a little more tolerable i think like if you had like a piece of toast and you spoon some beans on there sure. and then Take i think you would like something like that yeah, yeah. yeah. oh yeah. yeah no yeah for sure but i i guess my imagination <laughs> got carried away sure. and i imagine someone <laughs> dumping a whole can of uncooked beans sure onto a, okay. just an unsuspecting piece of bread and was just so horrified by that <laughs> idea Oh, you gotta draw the unsuspecting piece of bread going. No, it's a it's a piece of bread minding its own business, and all of a sudden here comes the beans. Just terrible. That needs to be like a comic, like a like a like that goes in the Sunday papers. Yeah, so. we gotta try those jaffles. I want to get one of those waffle irons. No, again. we're not getting a, we're not getting any more of these devices. Now. We don't need so, any of that. This has been Bean Talk with Aubrey and the Yes, game. another episode. Aubrey, sing us out. What's your outro song? This has been Bean Talk with Aubrey and the gang. Ah, oh, that's nice. Like that was it. wonderful. That's I love that. All right. Now we're going to go. <laughs> <laughs> and now we're going to go on to our book club episode for the week. This week we're talking about Hellboy and the BPRD in 1954, Black Sun. This was published in September and October 2016. And this was a two-issue miniseries written by Mignola and Robertson, and art by Stephen Green. Stephen Green is an artist residing in Savannah, Georgia. His work has been featured in Dark Horse Presents, The Legacy of Luther Strode, Hellboy and the BPRD, and Lobster Johnson. On his Felix comic art page, it says he can talk to animals. Oh, nice. <laughs> I mean, I can, I can talk to animals. <laughs> I do it every day. And, uh, Whether or not they actually care is another matter entirely. I know my dogs like it when I talk to them, but I think he might be meaning something a little different. <laughs> <laughs> and I had the absolute pleasure of meeting Stephen Green back in 2018 at Comic Palooza here in Houston. And I got a kick-ass sketch from him of the lobster. And he was seated right next to James Heron. Yeah, so there's James Heron and awesome. Stephen Green. That was really cool. He was a really great guy. Super nice re- guy. Super nice, yeah. You know what's sad about that is I was at that comic palooza, but I wasn't into Hellboy at the time, so I'm retroactively kicking my own ass. Oh, no. Well, you know what? You picked up the James Heron sketch for me. So you actually met James Heron. I met fucking James Heron, and yeah. I didn't even realize it. And you didn't Aww. realize it because you picked up the sketch from him you picked up my sketchbook oh yeah i did that was a great picture yeah yeah man i'm a dumbass <laughs> super nice guys really nice even I, if they hadn't have been nice though that would be like well it's a con it's probably overwhelming and right, probably right. tired and stuff i never really judge people if they're cranky but they were very nice yes and i also want to plug his awesome book sea of stars i highly recommend it it's a great series Issue 1 also has a Mignola variant cover. Yeah, so check out Stephen Green's Sea of Stars. 
And for this story, again, colors by Dave Stewart and letters by Clem Robbins. And we get this awesome cover by Mike Huddleston. He's an American comic book artist. He's worked for independent publishers as well as Marvel and DC Comics and Vertigo and Wildstorm imprints, including lengthy runs on Harley Quinn and Gen 13. This cover is beautiful. Yeah, it's really cool. It's hard not to just want to stare at it forever yeah i know stephen green didn't do the cover but i had him sign my books because he did all the interiors for these issues and he has a really interesting signature it's like in a little box i'll have to post pictures of those online this week you'll see them for the teaser on monday we open the story on fletcher's ice island t3 in the arctic ocean so this is actually a real thing fletcher's ice island or t3 was an iceberg discovered by the u.s air force between 1952 and 1978 it was used as a manned scientific drift station that included huts a power plant and a runway for wheeled aircraft the iceberg was a thick tabular sheet of glacial ice that drifted throughout the arctic ocean in a clockwise direction First inhabited in 1952 as an Arctic weather report station, it was abandoned in 1954, but re-inhabited on two subsequent occasions. I thought that was really interesting, and I love this panel as Hellboy leaps out of the plane here. I just love that, how he lands. Just really nice work by Stephen Green. I don't know. Wait. You're not supposed to do that. That's bad on the knees. Yeah, that's a superhero landing. There's right? stairs right there. Why are you jumping out of the? He's plane too excited. Like he's, he's a kid. Excited. He's a kid. Yeah. He's he's eight years old. Right. We all used to jump off the stairs. When we oh were yeah, kids. big time for sure. Wait, wait, hold on a second. You said it was abandoned in 1954. Did it say why? I mean, does it have anything to do with uh, space Nazis? Right. Exactly. That kind of goes along with the historical fiction. I love that. There are a couple more little details in the story that kind of allude to. Some of the real stuff with this ice station. The and colors on this page are super good. They are. Dave Stewart, like whenever we open on the story, yeah. there's always just some really beautiful just stuff. Going ham on it. When I was looking at this plane, you know, I was like, oh, here are all these numbers on the back. I'm going to have to like type that in or whatever. And that's so this is an actual plane with those actual numbers and everything. That's what it looks like. This is the C 47 Dakota. It was a cargo aircraft which was used as the workhorse of the Army Air Corps during World War II. It was also officially known as the Goonie Bird. It served in all theaters of war and served in civilian capacity to help establish the U.S. airlines. Yeah, so I thought that was really interesting, too. Um, Just already, just in the first two panels, chalked full of historical fiction and stuff that kind of makes us settle into the world, right? See, I thought that those numbers were just, like, random because, I mean, like, those are, like, numbers that identify planes, so... Finding out that that's actually a real plane is pretty awesome. Yeah, I'll post pictures of that. And they land, you know, they're in the ice, and Hellboy says, We get sent to all the nicest places, huh? The agent that he's with, Woodrow Farrier, it says PhD in Biological Services, University of Chicago, BPRD affiliation as of 1953. He says it'll be worth it if the professor and I are right about what's out here. As Slater approaches, this is the chief scientist from the Arctic Research Laboratory, he says he thought Hellboy was a hoax. And he leads them to his team, saying they just had breakfast. Did I forget to wind my watch, Hellboy asks? Looks like it's still night. So on Fletcher's Ice Island, around this time of the year, the sun would only shine six to nine hours a day, depending on what part of February this is. I thought he said that it only lasted for like one hour. 
at some point. That, that's just based on what I read oh, about. Okay. It made me think of uh, the movie Insomnia and the remake uh, Insomnia, where they're in the uh, northern region and it's daylight all day long. And then also 30 Days a Night, where it's just night all day Right, long. yeah. And I've always wanted to go visit a place like that. Oh, yeah. It's, yeah. It would seem scary to me. I'd be like, what the fuck? There's never any sun. <laughs> Farrier mentions the sighting, and this guy's like, yeah, sure, the sighting. The details provided by the Air Force were somewhat cursory, Farrier says. Was there an olfactory component? Any distinctive sound the creature made? Professor Broom at the Bureau and I have developed a theory about what it is you have encountered, but I need some additional clarification before, and Hellboy interrupts. He's like, you'll have to excuse my friend here. He doesn't get out in the field much. He's a little overeager. Yeah, so Farrier's a little too excited to be out there. And they lead them inside the tent, and he says, I don't want to be out here any longer than I have to. And then they exchange a glance, like, what was that all about? As they enter the tent, they meet the rest of the team. They've got someone in there from the Air Force, a guy from Stanford studying fauna, another guy studying lichens for the University of Oregon. And so I had to look that up. Did you know what that was? Lichen. Lichen. There you go. Yeah. Thank you for that. A simple, slow-growing plant that typically forms a low, crusty, leaf-like or branching growth on rocks, walls, and trees. Yeah, lichen are fucking dope. I love wandering around the neighborhood looking at different lichen. I know that sounds weird. Like, there's so many different, like, species of it, and Uh it's all... You can pick up... Yeah, you'll pick up little branches and and be looking at it. Yeah, John and I will just, like, be on a walk, and I'll just stop... In my tracks and like pick up a branch off of the sidewalk and like look at it and he's just like what are you anyway I I follow all these Twitter accounts where people take these like macro images of okay lichen and cool. stuff like that anyway cool back to not boring stuff that is not boring I find that interesting I too. find it fascinating but I'm sure a lot of people listening to this are like wow Danielle is this the lichen podcast <laughs> I thought it was the Hellboy hey book we just club. Ta- we just we talked just about like beans on toast <laughs> yeah for like 20 minutes so you know. <laughs> Okay, well, just love. I just love lichen. I find it fascinating. And so uh, when you brought that up, I got super excited. I was like, oh! Awesome. Well, they have a guy here just researching that. I Yeah, I mean, I don't blame him. It's fucking great. And a guy from the Weather Bureau. And so in the actual history of this eye station, it was a weather station first, you know? So that kind of goes along with that. He's the guy that's been there the longest, too. Hellboy asks them some questions, and he refers them to Woody Farrier, and he's now taken off the scarf covering his face. My name is Woodrow Farrier. I specialize in cryptozoology, the study of animals that have been reported in folklore and legend, but not yet documented by science. Oh, didn't figure they'd be sending a colored one of the yikes, guys. Said. Yikes, yikes. Yeah. Fucking gross. Asshole. He's just like... Yes, well, I understand one of your crew was lost in the incident, so they just he just glosses right over it. He's yeah. like, I'm not going to attend to that. No one's going to say anything about that. We're just here to work. I feel like if Hellboy was not an eight-year-old right. child that looked like a grown man. Well, he's definitely giving him a look there, too. Yeah, yeah. but I feel like if he were like grown, grown, right. like the Hellboy that we're used to, he probably would have gone off immediately yeah. like, wow. Yeah, but you know, there's none of that here. Right, he's, like y'all reminded me earlier, he's like a little kid. Basically, and, and they're like, "Oh, you're a big red monster, but but we're a cool color guy." <laughs> yeah, wow. The crew tell the agents that a seismologist from MIT went out after picking up some anomalous readings, and he never came back. When they went in search for him, he was all dead and mutilated. 
And as they were bringing the body back, they got attacked. Two of the guys were injured. Luckily, they had a flare gun, which allowed them to get away. And we just see, like, a shape, you know, attacking the guys. A white shape. As Farrier asks for more details, we learn that some think it was a polar bear. They describe it as having a bad smell. Just fascinating, Farrier says. He's all excited, right, that they found some undocumented species. And he suggests they start looking for it if somebody will guide them. And Hellboy kind of gives him the side eye. That's a really nice moment right there. None of the crew want to take them. Some can't do to their injuries. But this guy, I think this one's Herlin, he says, None of you would have lasted a day in the Alaska Territorial Guard. And so he volunteers to help them. And the Alaska Territorial Guard, that was a real thing. It was commonly known as the Eskimo Scouts. It was a military reserve force component of the U.S. Army, organized in 1942 in response to attacks on United States soil in Hawaii and parts of Alaska. The ATG operated until 1947. 6,368 volunteers served without pay, and they were enrolled in 107 communities throughout Alaska, in addition to the staff of 21. The ATG brought together, for the first time, a lot of members of various indigenous ethnic groups from Alaska. And so a lot of these members, like, they ended up being sharpshooter, expert sharpshooter ranks in the military. Wow. They were all volunteers. Among the 27 or more women members, there was at least one whose riflery skills exceeded all the men. The ages of members at enrollment ranged from 80 to as young as 12. Because they were all volunteers. So they were all the people who were like too old or too young to be in the actual army. Huh. And so it that seems, is interesting. Yeah, it seems like this guy was a part of that. So that makes him seem like a cool dude when you know the background. Maybe he's a little bit more accepting. No, I, I do want to add it. It's just like, you know, I like how everybody's like making some bullshit excuse, but then he's all like, no, I'll take you. Right. You know, I mean, and it seems like, you know, he's a good guy, you know. As they go out onto the ice, Herlin gives them more facts about Fletcher's Ice Island, and he says there are ice foxes and polar bears out there, but they mostly keep to themselves. Maybe one of them came from their habitat. Agent Farrier thinks they might be dealing with a Yeti, and he thinks about the prospect of bringing one back. He's pretty pumped throughout this whole thing. Uh, when he said bring about a Yeti, I was just like, ooh, maybe this is where Hellboy learns to be able to treat Daryl nice. But, of course, that's not where the story goes. Oh, okay, yeah. I didn't even think about Daryl, but you're absolutely right. I thought about Daryl, too. I was oh, like, oh, yeah. is this the, a Yeti thing? Yeah. As Herlin leads them to the body, he says that he's seen polar bear attacks before. This thing was too big and smelled all wrong. Size and smell don't matter, Hellboy says. Last year, I ran up against a kid's pet dog that mutated until it was the size of a house. Yeah, so he's mentioning the events from Beyond the Fences. This has got to be the same kind of deal, he says. Hellboy, Farrier responds, you always think mutation is the answer. Trust me, Woody, Hellboy says, when you've been in the field as long as I have, you'll understand. I thought that was a funny comment because he hasn't been in the field very long. Yeah. Right? Like two years or something. Yeah. Yeah. That's He's like, the, when you're a seasoned pro like me. That's what makes it a, <laughs> such a cute comment, though. Yeah. It's adorable. Suddenly, they hear this growl. They all turn around, and then they start getting attacked. And there's a really good action beat here. I love the work by Stephen Green because he kind of keeps the monster kind of shadowed. Yeah. You know, it's a good action beat, but you never really get to see what the thing looks like. I kind of like that. That one panel where it says thud is the action thing. Oh, yeah. 
that one panel is just so well rendered and it's such a great action piece. It could be a splash page by itself. Right. Yeah, I love that. Yeah, Stephen Green is awesome. And on the next page, there's a great part where Hellboy headbutts this polar bear monster. Here we kind of get a better look at it. But like... You don't think about that as much. Like, he could headbutt people. He's basically got a stone head. You know what I mean? He's got those horn stubs up there, you know? That's a pretty cool move. It's pretty good. And I love this, like, as they both fall backwards after the headbutt, there are these little stars that Stephen Green has put in there. That's really cute. I like that. (laughs) In the aftermath, now it looks like the polar bear's down. So what was it, they ask? It appears to be, and they all look at it, Farrier says, a mutated polar bear. See, I told you, Hellboy responds. Now, if we look around, I'm sure we'll find some of that, what do you call it, enkelodite, right? Because he's thinking yeah, about what happened in the last yeah. episode. He's starting to put these things together. I like that. Yeah, I when I read that, I was like, all right, Hellboy is uh, he's putting two two together, and that's pretty awesome. Yeah. He's learning to be the world's greatest paranormal investigator. Yeah, there you go. Yeah, so I love this panel. Hellboy starts lighting his cigarette, right? Um, He says, it should be easier with the sun coming up for a while. It won't be up for long, Herland says. Daylight only lasts an hour this time of the year. That's what you had mentioned, yeah. I don't know. My research said that it was more like six at this in February for that time of the year. But I don't know. I could be completely wrong. I might be looking at the wrong side of the... Maybe Earth their research yeah. is wrong. Who knows? Maybe the guy's just kind of sort of just like, oh, it's only for an hour, but it's really going to be up six hours. Oh, right. yeah. Maybe he doesn't have a good like, sense of time. Who knows? Yeah. Or, you know, he's just like, you know, just kind of being all like, yeah, it's not going to be up long. Yeah. Whom's amongst us? I mean, I've, I've, <laughs> I've looked up like surely only 15 minutes has passed and it's like it's been five or six hours. Right. So. <laughs> they see something in the distance. They're like, what is that? Another research station? Herlin's like, good God. What is that? What the fuck? Yeah, flying saucer. That is so crazy. Yeah, really, right? This took a real X-Files turn. So when I was researching this Fletcher's Ice Island, one of the pictures that I came across is there was an actual plane crash on the island. What? And um, it kind of looked like this. Oh, shit. It kind of looked like this UFO crashed in the ice. It kind of had the same feel. Maybe I'll put those pictures side by side. But I love Hellboy's face too. Like his cigarette just falls clean out of his mouth. It's a He's so fucking yeah. saucer. Yeah. I mean, it's. I don't know why, but I'm looking at this panel with the crashed ship. I'm just really drawn to the shadows on the uh, the they, that they're casting. It's they're very well done. Yeah, all the work here I, is beautiful. Yeah. Farrier asks Hellboy if he sees this sort of thing a lot. He's like, nope, this is a new one for me. He's like, it doesn't smell like petroleum. It smells like that mutated polar bear, almost like something rotten. And Hellboy says, I think I found the pilot. There's just another mutilated body there. I mean, it doesn't even, I can't even tell what that's supposed to be. Little green men, maybe? Hellboy asks. And I love this, like, he just starts crawling up into the thing. He's like, looks like it came out of here. Do you guys hear that? He's like, hey, anybody in here? I'm going to go check it out. And he just like, this makes me think of like, more like a kid, you know, who's just like, oh, I'm just going to open this thing up and go inside and check it out. Herlin's like, I don't like this. You guys keep an eye out, Hellboy says, in case there's any other mutant things roaming around. And they're like, you're going in there? He goes, I'll be right back. And so he crawls inside this thing, and it's really small inside there. And once he gets in there, this red light turns on, the hatch closes. Oh, crap, Hellboy says. 
outside Farrier and the other guys start banging on the UFO. Hellboy, can you hear me? They have to move out of the way because the ice is shattering apart. And then the thing cracks and goes down into the water. Inside, we see Hellboy. He's getting all knocked around and it looks like he passes out. That's another great page by Stephen Green, too. So is this the end of one issue and the start of the next? Yeah, I think so. It might be. I, I actually didn't go back and check. Because it, it feels like, you know, because it goes like, you know, all black and then the next it's like kind of waking up. Yeah. That's where the commercial like break goes. Stu- <laughs> yeah. yeah, I do really like that transition. Really nice page layout there. And Hellboy wakes up. The hatch opens, and he's able to exit the UFO. Well, and like when you he- were talking about earlier, like uh, how he had the stars or whatever. He's got these little oh yeah little circles here to indicate. I like that the wooziness, all, yeah. yeah. And when he goes out, he sees an entire like uh, warehouse uh, full of all these UFOs. Uh, okay, that's unexpected, he says. And then suddenly, someone tells him halt, and it's in those brackets, so we know it's like in a foreign language. Fucking. Nazis! And we reveal all these fucking Nazis. Not these guys again, Hellboy Uh, says. I was thinking the same thing, Hellboy. Not these motherfuckers again. (laughs) So I don't know if you remember on... um, When we were talking about professional help from Weird Tales, they were talking about those different Nazi symbols or Nazi organizations, and they mentioned Black Circle. And so this is, at the time, I was wondering if this is what they meant. This is the Black Sun. So that's the title of the book, too. So Black Sun is alluding to this, but it's also alluding to that part of Antarctica where they were, and there's not a lot of sunlight. So yeah, Um, kind of ties into there. But that is what that symbol is. All these Nazis... They're all in their uniforms, and they start surrounding Hellboy with all their guns. Fucking guys. Hold on, Chief. I don't want to. And then they just start shooting at him. Fine, we'll do it your way. And so Hellboy starts punching. He punches as one Nazi, and then they all kind of start to surround him. And I love the pacing here. They, like, enclose on him, and then he's just totally engulfed by all these guys around him. And he says, I hate Nazis. Boom! And we get Right Hand of Doom Boom, number 39, against a group of Nazis. And just the pacing there on those two panels is really great. Just so satisfying. We haven't had a boom in a while. Yeah, it's, awesome. yeah. it hasn't so been it's since, uh, since Hellboy in Hell. Yeah, yeah, it is very fitting. Look, okay. I think we can all agree that punching the shit out of Nazis is excellent. Oh, I love the time. action yeah. here. Yeah, he's like clunking their heads together like the Three oh, Stooges. I love that. <laughs> He says, you guys just don't know when you're beat. It's and then true. he sees them uh, He sees them charging up these weapons, and he's like, oh, boy. Yeah, but these weapons that they have, these, like, electricity guns or whatever, they kind of remind me of those spears that they had in Dr. Karp's experiment. And then also in the Wild Hunt, they had, like, these electrified spears and stuff like that. It kind of had this blue lightning. It also kind of reminded me of the uh, little, I guess, tubes that were on Rasputin's... Um... Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. Yeah, and the action is really great here. I love Hellboy kind of leaping over the UFO. It's a very, like, superhero hey, type well, of Well, he's move. doing the detective car slide on a fucking yeah. flying saucer, <laughs> which is just so great. Chef's kiss to that. And he's trying to dodge them, but they're quickly outnumbering him. And then the voice, I guess this is the leader, he says, the creature may be of use to us. I want it taken alive. And they're like, okay, switching to non-lethal, and then they zap him. I like seeing the skeleton kind of come through with the electricity. Oh, yeah, it's good. I like the zap itself, like the way that that was Clem Robbins, yeah. Yeah, that's 
You know, Mark Tweedo has mentioned this before, like, this could easily be done perfectly, but like Clem Robbins, like the letters have a little bit of imperfection. They're not totally oh, yeah. perfect. Well, you you want can kind that. of, yeah. I, I do. They, and it, the way it's kind of rounded too, you know, the sound effect also across the panel is really nice. That oh, is no, a really was, cool, yeah. I was going to say, well, the automatopoeia is cool. I was actually talking about like this itself, like the actual. Oh, you're talking about the actual effect of the lightning. Of the, yeah. yeah. Him, like, it's really cool. Weird... It's a cool panel. The shape of the energy blast or yeah. whatever the fuck. It's a neat way of depicting that. And just like Aubrey said, the bones, like how did they do yeah, that? Like, that's so cool. Well, I mean a transparent layer. It's kinda like how you see in like a, like I guess like cartoons and stuff like that, when like somebody gets zapped, you kinda get a flash real fast and you'll see like the skeleton for a brief moment. Oh, look at this. You can see his hoof in his boot. Yeah, like, oh, wh- yeah. like why is he wearing boots? Show us the hooves. Well, this is young Hellboy. I guess so he's just started out wearing the boots. Show us the hoovies. Yeah, he didn't switch to the other ones later. No, I like no, he, that you a know, lot. He was, great. He, he was a kid. He was just like, I want to be cool and wear these boots. Yeah. yeah. Like you do. That. Yeah. No, I like the little that you can see that. That's cool. Thanks for pointing that out. I actually didn't even notice that. That's great. I just noticed it right now. That's, That's awesome. a very cool detail. That's super good. And so when Hellboy wakes up, the scientists have him all hooked up to this machine and he's like crap and he looks over and he sees all them there and they're all like checking levels or doing science stuff and hellboy's like hey I, background business right it's their science business he tries to talk to them hey i think we got off on the wrong foot why don't we know nothing right because they're just ignoring him and going on with their stuff damn nazis hellboy says so when we see him tied up here like you got the the left hand of normalness is bolted onto that thing. And then the right hand of doom is just strapped on with like some ropes. So I was like, that's not going to hold him. Right. That, that's so funny that you mentioned that. That's exactly what I was thinking too. When I saw that, like you immediately look at that and then go like, there is no way that they're going to be able to hold that. So, it, so everything that happens uh, for the next few pa- you know, pages or something like that, it's just like, that boy's just getting information out of him. Right. Exactly. And so the leader guy comes down, they call him Gruppenfuhrer or something like that, Eckhart, and that means group leader. He inspects Hellboy and he asks the scientists if they're certain they can extract the Shakti. Shakti means power in Hindu philosophy and theology. Shakti is understood to be the active dimension of the Godhead, the divine power that underlies the Godhead's ability to create the world and to display itself. Nice. The scientist, he's, he responds to the group leader and says, given the creature's purported infernal origins, we can surmise that his Shakti is of a different caliber than those of terrestrial sources. We won't know for certain until the, come on already, Hellboy yeah. says. <laughs> I love that part. He's Enough just like, exposition. They're just like talking and talking and he's like, well, he's being totally ignored and he can't understand what they're saying. And so I just love that little expression there. That's such a great panel. Oh, I love that. I mean, just, come on. He says, bet none of you morons even understands English. I love that because that's his way for them to start speaking English, right? He's just like, uh, it's just a little a little kid mind trick, really, yeah, right? it's good. <laughs> yeah, I totally agree. And so Eckhart, he comes up and he's like, I speak English fluently, thank you. But I don't need to engage with the laboratory rat. I never understand how you jokers get off acting so high and mighty, considering we whipped your butts back in the war, Hellboy says, and we keep beating you too. 
just a couple of years ago, I took care of your friend, the brain in the jar. What's his name? And Eckhart's like, that buffoon Von Klempt is no friend of mine. And he's like, that lunatic and his ilk were more nettlesome than the allies. And when it said nettlesome, I was thinking like, shouldn't that be meddlesome? Is that what you were going to say? No. I mean, nettlesome is like, you know, like stinging nettles. Like that's like something annoying. Yeah, no, I had to look. So I actually looked this up. So nettlesome means something irritating, yeah. and meddlesome means that you butt in where you're not needed. Yeah. Yeah, so those are two different... Either way. Yeah. My thing was, would the Nazis have referred to the people who were against them as the allies? Did Because uh, I know that oh, like, I don't know. Yeah. people against the Nazis referred to themselves as the allies. Yeah, they were called the Allied Nations. Right. So, so they, and, uh, they referred to them as like the Allies, like a proper noun, like the Allies. I guess. I don't know. That is interesting, well, that though. Would, I don't know. That would just be like, because I don't know. I can imagine well, them talking amongst themselves like, yeah, so the Allies, what, our Allies or the Allies? Yeah. <laughs> no, not our well, Allies, like the Allies. Because <laughs> that would get confusing really quick, I would think. Anyway, yeah. I don't know. They did refer to themselves as the Axis okay. uh, because Germany, Japan, and Italy, they referred to themselves as the Axis as the Axis that the world spins around. Right, right. And so they're... Um, like the Axis I, I of power, we, not the Axis of evil that we... Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah. You know, they are the Axis of the world. Everything revolves around them. Sure, sure. They probably did refer to the Allies as the Allies, as okay. opposed to calling them like the, the British or the Americans or the French or everybody else in the world right. who thinks you guys need to fuck Everybody off. else, yeah. <laughs> and I don't know how much of that is a product of like the public school system or right. just me, myself, for not doing enough research. In any case, fuck those Nazis. Yes. Beat them up. Beat them all up. I feel like this is something where Hellboy's learning that he can provoke these people yeah uh, yeah just by just by saying like certain things because like this guy is all like he's like i don't need to talk to lab rats blah 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 <laughs> and then he's like he says something else and then the guy he is clearly losing his shit right <laughs> his bottom panel <laughs> to be, so I mean, like you know but how you know how put together are nazis in the first place right, right? like they're gonna be unhinged anyway yeah. well, no, no, but what i'm saying is like hellboy is learning yeah to use his brain as opposed to his brawn. Sure, yeah. absolutely. You yeah. know, he's all like, oh, if I just talk some shit, these guys are going <laughs> to flip the fuck out. Well, and you've it, never it, it, seen a group of people more proud to be a bunch of fucking losers, except for maybe those Confederate flag assholes. Right. I was so, <laughs> yeah, it's the same energy. It's the same shit. Like, we're losers and we're fucking proud of it. We're proud to be on the wrong side of fucking history. So it just takes the most minimal amount of yeah. goading before they lose their shit, which is fantastic. As Eckhart, he gives the exposition here. He talks about Hitler and Himmler and how they had the different factions of their occult research. And we see Project Ragnarok and all those goons. And then we also see Von Klempt and his people. You know, we see the Kriegrafen and Cronin back there. And then we see them. They were called the Sonorad Society. And so that means Sunwheel. And that's also kind of that circle thing. That they were the true occult bureau, laboring in secret since the Reich's earliest days, the Order of the Black Sun. They were scientists and researchers, and they were tasked with investigating anything of occult power which the party encountered. And so I, wanna, I want you all to look at this top panel here 
on this next page where it shows them doing this experiment. So we saw something kind of like this in Conqueror Worm where these guys, they there's like different people seated around a thing and they're all like got these head yeah. pieces. Yeah. Okay, but look at this thing in the middle that they're yeah. generating. What is that? Okay, because they're talking about the shock T and all this kind of stuff. And I think we're going to get some more little details in here. I think they're trying to make the black flame. Oh, shit. That's his head. Damn, dude. I think that's what... I don't know. I mean, you guys tell me if I'm wrong. There's some more details in here. Um, if you look in the background, we see this bull thing, and that kind of looks like Moloch, and we saw that the Russians had this. So I wonder if the Russians had taken this from the Nazis, or how, or maybe that's not even the same statue, but that looks like the Moloch statue back there. Well, no, no, they probably did take it from him, because later in the story, he talks about how they found that uh, ship the Russians. Took oh, it from. they they talk about that. And remember when Vavara led uh, Broom into their warehouse of all their stuff? There was a UFO in the background in 1946. Do you remember that? I do. But honestly, I didn't even catch any of that because I was too busy looking at the panel below. Yes. Okay. So the panel below it, there's even more Easter eggs in there. We see Longius Spear or the Spear of Destiny, right? And remember that um, that guy Ice, that scientist, he was also a Nazi scientist in BPRD and he turned himself into like a flesh moth, flesh butterfly monster. And he was using the Spear of Destiny. We also see one of those Thadrian frogs. We saw those floating around Liz and the Black Goddess. And then this thing in the middle, I was trying to figure out which deity this is. And it looks like this is Mahakala. Mahakala is a deity common to Hinduism, Buddhism, and Sikhism. According to Hinduism, Mahakala is a manifestation of Shiva and is the consort of the Hindu goddess Mahakali and most prominently appears in a sect of Shaktiism. Okay, so they mentioned Shakti, oh, okay. and then this is go. in, yeah, so all this stuff is like tying together. There's so much great research in here, um, the amount of research. I wonder who does that, you know, is it Robertson, is it Mignola, right. you know, bringing all these kind of historical bits in there. Mignola has <clears throat> uh, historically enjoyed doing shit like right. that, so I don't know. They carried out their own searches for some items, and so we see them having, like, a expedition. It was in one such dig in an Austrian ice cave that we found what the ancient Aryans called a Vimana, believed to be a chariot of the gods. Vimana are mystical flying palaces or chariots described in Hindu text and Sanskrit epics. But we knew what it truly was, a flying machine that had traveled across the stars from another world ages ago. Flying saucers from out of space. Pull the other one, Hellboy says. Eckert says the others didn't believe either. The Russians have the original. And so that's the one that I think that maybe we saw in 1946. And he also says the Roswell crash is the Americans' version of it. And here, like, Hellboy's just like... I love that beat where Hellboy's just kind of thinking, you know, he's got his... He's got all the information now. He's ready to enact his plan. And mostly, I do kind of like the uh, the little addition to the uh, crash and walls wall. I like the idea that the government was working on a flying saucer, quote unquote, right? Uh, and then just said it was a weather balloon, but then decided to go ahead and let everybody think it was an alien to kind of throw them off from what they're really doing. Right. That is cool. That's a nice little twist on that kind of thing. We see Roswell worked into so many historical fiction comics. But neither can follow the success of what they've done. Only their minds could grasp such complexities, Eckert says. They reverse-engineered the one they found in Austria, and then they made this whole fleet of them. 
but they're hard to charge up. They must have been powered by an exotic energy known as the Vril, but they couldn't duplicate it. Thankfully, the solution was before us the entire time, hidden in plain sight on ancient stone tablets unearthed in the Near East by German archaeologists. These tablets spoke of another form of energy, almost the counterpoint to Vril, a black flame called Shakti. So now we have a name for that thing. I don't know if we had given that they had given that name to it, but that's like the anti-Vril, you know, or the black flame. And we also get a flashback to Rise of the Black Flame. He says the ancients possessed a mean by which the shock tea could be harvested, but the amount which could be drawn from any single bean would be minuscule. Their scientists have figured out to get a machine to take it out of all these people. Thankfully, our scientists had access to ample number of living beings that could be used for these purposes because they're Nazis and they torture a bunch of people. And the professor here devised a method of storing the shock tea for later use. I think I liked it better when I couldn't understand what you were saying, Hellboy says. The process is not without drawbacks. Volatile byproduct that can mutate organisms on contact. So that's what happened to the polar bear. And he says, there were setbacks. And we just get this one panel of like this monkey thing, like tearing apart some guy or something. And it's on fire. Yeah. So they went out to this remote spot to complete their fleet and do their test flights. I think you guys must have missed a memo, Hellboy says. The war is over, and the good guys won. The war is not over, Eckhart says. It's merely postponed. When Hitler failed to defeat the Allies, we of the Black Sun realized that we were the true heirs of the Nazi ideal, and the saucer shall be the instrument of ultimate victory. My vision will succeed where Ragnarok and Vampirsturm and so many others failed before me. Soon the fleet will take to the skies and the black sun will rise over the earth and my Reich shall last for a thousand years and longer. And then so we get this image of like what that would look like, right? And so we see all the flying saucers and those stupid black sun flags. It looks like they're attacking New York City because I can kind of see the Empire State Building. Oh, right. Yeah. Good detail there. How dare Uh, you use the flying saucer archetype? For Nazi bullshit. Right. <laughs> Go fuck yourself. I just, I don't know. I mean, the, the sheer arrogance of this douchebag, uh, like, we're the Aryan race and we know better than everybody, but no, you're fucking losers. Yeah. And they're giving Hellboy all the details here, right? The scientist is saying the extractor is ready and they plan that what they extract from Hellboy will power the entire fleet. As the scientist comes to position it in place... That the extractor, huh? Hellboy asks. And it's pretty volatile? Yeah, yeah, it's very volatile, the guy responds. And Hellboy just smiles. And of course, just like Aubrey said, he snaps the right hand of doom out of those cheap little binds that they had it in. And he's able to smash the extractor. That is so great. great. I mean, you knew that's what he was going to do. I mean, we knew that's what he was going to do. But I mean, it goes back to my previous comments of them being losers. Well, and they don't probably think that Hellboy is going to do this because we kind of see once he lets loose all that power. Remember, this stuff is almost as powerful as Vril. They're basically Hellboy's unleashing a power like that the Black Flame was using when he was like blasting people and, you know, fighting with Liz in the air and stuff like that. And what we see here is like, it totally blows up everything. I mean, the whole underground bunker and then all the way out through the hole in the Arctic where that research station was. So after the explosion, we just see this sky, another nice, beautiful sky by Dave Stewart. 
and we see this helicopter out there, and in the helicopter is Broom and Archie Muraro, Hellboy's friend from childhood, and they're looking for Hellboy, and they spot something out there, and we just see Hellboy, he's in all this wreckage, and he's like frozen, he's got like the army phone there, just surrounded by debris from the explosion. That sucks. And in the next panel, you know, they found him, and they've built a fire around him, and... Archie says, give it a bit longer, kid. Your jaw finished thawing out in a second. Since you disappeared in the waters beneath the ice island, the Bureau's been searching for you everywhere, Broom says. We had planes circling all over the Arctic, ships searching the nearest coastline, submarines plumbing the depths. More than six weeks of searching, and we found no trace of you, nor of the craft that Farrier described. Then the U.S. State Department got word from Tokyo that a Japanese whaling vessel had picked up a BPRD distress call from the South Atlantic of all places. And Hellboy, like his jaw hasn't finished thawing yet, so he's just like, South Atlantic, I love that right there. Yes, that's the most remarkable thing about it, Broom says. You are not in the Arctic where you began, my boy, but in the Antarctic. I can only speculate that the craft that brought you here passed through the Earth somehow. There are, of course, countless legends about the hollow earth and hidden passages that connect one pole to the other. I had assumed these to be a metaphor for the hidden recesses of the human mind, but they may have a material reality. And that's a great panel right there. That's a very, like, Mignola-esque panel. Oh, yeah, I love it. I wonder if we've seen imagery like that before when they've described the hollow earth, because we saw, like, we've seen already a lot of allusions to this and, like, cults devoted to all of this. Perhaps those who constructed the craft had knowledge of such passages, Broom says. So remember, um, in one of the very first BPRD stories, Hollow Earth, they found a Nazi submarine in the middle of these passages. So that kind of alludes to that, too. Bunch of Nazis, flying saucers, Hellboy says, I took care of it. And he sips his little tea or whatever, Ah. his hot drink there. I'm going to assume it's coffee. Yeah, that that was a good one. I love these little stories, and I, I just like, uh, they had that UFO in 1946 in the background, and it's like, they they had to come back to that somehow, and yeah. include how UFOs were going to be um, incorporated into this, and so I really liked that. I will admit, the first time I saw the, when we first saw the flying saucer at the beginning, I was actually thinking more of the Buster Oakley gets his wish. Oh, right, uh, yeah. And then I was like, oh, Nazis. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, but we have seen actual aliens in flying saucers. You're right, in Buster Oakley. Wow, okay. All right, and for our next story, we're going to talk about the Unreasoning Beast. This is a one-shot arc of Hellboy and the BPRD 1954 that was published in November 2016, written by Mignola and Robertson, and illustrated by Patrick Reynolds. So we haven't seen Patrick Reynolds in a while. Colors by Dave Stewart and letters by Clem Robbins. And we have another amazing cover by Mike Huddleston. Once again, a beautiful cover. Yeah, these are really great. I really like the the painting type covers um, we see sometimes, you know, because it doesn't have all the black outlines. You see a normal comic kind of stuff. It's more like a painting. Uh, I'm just rambling. but Yeah, no, I, it has a nice I feel it. to it's it. Great. Yeah. It's a good look for, for a cover to this kind of book. We open in Baltimore of June 1954. This is a major city in Maryland, and they have a long history as an important seaport. And we see this guy in his living room, and there's a knock at the door. Who the and fuck wears a tie in their own living room? I know. <laughs> That's bullshit. And I do. at the door, we see Hellboy and Agent Jiang. They arrive at the Colster household, and they meet the dad here. His name is Thomas. 
Thomas says he didn't know who else to call, but he saw them in an article. And again, he's just totally fine with talking to this red guy. I think that's so funny. Yeah, you great. know what I mean? Like, I guess Hellboy's been in the news a lot, so maybe everyone's used to him. But you would think still you would be like, I'm meeting a celebrity almost, you know, or something like that. He introduces them to his wife, Margaret, and he also introduces the agents to his son, Victor. Hey, Victor says, not looking up from his Sheena Queen of the Jungle comic oh, book. Geez. Margaret apologizes for Victor's demeanor. She says he's been under the weather. Yeah, but if you zoom in on this comic book cover, Reynolds has faithfully recreated the actual cover to Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, issue 8 from Fiction House Comics in 1950, cover art by Robert Webb. Sheena, Queen of the Jungle, is a fictional American comic book jungle girl heroine. She was the first female comic book character with her own title in 1937, preceding Wonder Woman 1 by four years. Sheena inspired a wealth of comic book jungle queens. She was predated in literature by Rima the Jungle Girl in 1904. So that's maybe where they got some of the inspiration for that character. Zhang asks them for more details on the case. It's horrible, Thomas says. The damn thing is out to get me. Damn thing, Hellboy asks. Yes, Robert's monkey, of course. And the, the expression of this guy, I really like that, how outraged he is. Patrick Reynolds does a great job of just conveying all that. Thomas explains, it started shortly after his brother died. I always told Robert that he needed to get his pipes looked at. I was sure that I smelled a gas leak more than once. When his home went up in flames, he never had a chance. Robert's godforsaken monkey was killed in the fire too, Thomas says. And from the couch with his comic book, Victor sighs and says his name was Diogenes. And so Diogenes, so obviously the brother named his monkey after Diogenes the Cynic. This was a Greek philosopher and one of the founders of the Cynic philosophy. He was a controversial figure. He modeled himself on the example of Heracles and believed that virtue was better revealed in action than in theory. He used his simple lifestyle and behavior to criticize the social values and institutions of what he saw as corrupt, confused society. He had a reputation for sleeping and eating whenever he chose in a highly non-traditional fashion and took to toughening himself against nature. He declared himself a cosmopolitan and citizen of the world rather than claiming allegiance to just one place. Diogenes made a virtue of poverty. He begged for a living and often slept in a large ceramic jar in the marketplace. He became notorious for his philosophical stunts, such as carrying a lamp during the day, claiming to be looking for an honest man. So I thought that was interesting, considering, like, Diogenes is trying to get this guy who we, t we learn is lying. You know what I mean? About what he's saying. So when I read the name, I was like, hmm, I don't know how to pronounce that. I'm going to go with you. Dio jeans. Okay. And it, it reminds me of what uh, Danielle said, you know, like, if you mispronounce a name, you mean you learned it you by learned reading it. You learned it by reading it. Yeah. And that's a perfect example of Yeah, that. absolutely. I I mean, I've done that with a lot of different words. The only reason I knew it is because it's in a Bad Religion lyric. Yeah, for sure. <laughs> Greg Graffin. Oh. He says I Diogenes. Mean, yeah. Whatever the damn thing was called, Thomas says, he always had it in for me. The vile little beast always hissed whenever I got near and tried to bite me and scratch me. He was always nice to me, Victor says. Okay, so when he said that Diogenes was always mean to him or something like that, it made me think of, like, my dogs, you know. My dogs are pretty cool dogs, but uh, especially Jake. But, you know, he kind of can sense when people are not good people. Right, you know? right, yeah. He's all like, you know, most people, he's all like, hey, what's up? 
Other people are like, get away from me. And we've seen that in the Hellboy verse that animals like always know what's going on or they yeah. have like a sense of, you know, that kind of thing. We're sorry for your loss, Shang says. What's the monkey got to do with it, though, Hellboy asks. Thomas says shortly after the fire, strange things started happening in the house, but only late at night. Weird noises, doors opening and slamming, and drawers falling out of their cabinets. Then one night he got up for a snack and saw this scary ghost monkey. He also saw it when he was coming home from work one night. And then again, when he was working on the car. And these are really cool, creepy panels, too. I love Reynolds' work on this. He's so great. Um, Jason Abaddon. Jason Abaddon. Book club member. Yeah, he has some awesome commissions by Patrick Reynolds. I'll ask him if I can post them this week. But he had Patrick Reynolds draw all the Hellboy crew, like, drinking. Nice. So, Broom, and it looks like John Hurt Broom from the movie. It looks really cool, and he's got, like, one of those kind of rounded glasses you know what i mean like those little yeah kind of and then hellboy's got a like a stein like a Mm -hmm. beer stein abe's got like a bottle and liz has like a shot glass nice yeah and they're all individual portraits they're amazing they're really beautiful so i love patrick reynolds check him out on instagram that seems accurate to what every one of them would yeah Hellboy asks if anyone saw the thing, and Thomas says by the time Margaret got there, it was gone. But she did hear the slamming doors and stuff, but never saw the ghost. She's worried they're not safe there. Even though it seems like it's just me that the thing is after, Thomas says. Hellboy says they'll stick around and see what they see. Zhang assures them that they see this kind of thing all the time. Not exactly ghost monkeys, Hellboy adds, but in the same ballpark, sure. So maybe he's referencing the ghost that they encountered in Wandering Souls. Remember, he was with Zhang on that mission, too. Margaret tells Victor that it's time for bed, and as he's leaving, she checks his temperature. She observes that he still has a fever and says they might have to go back to the doctor. And I love the way Reynolds draws kids, too. You mentioned this a lot. Yeah. You know, when someone... And, like, I was thinking the last Reynolds story that we had had a little boy in it also. It was called The Haunted Boy. It was an Abe Sapien story. I just... Anytime an artist draws a child like a child and not, like, yeah. a weird adult that has bad proportions. Instead. Yeah. But I wonder if they're like, oh, there's a little kid featured in this. Let's get Patrick Reynolds to sure. do it. You know what I yeah. mean? Or something like that. So, after Victor leaves, Hellboy asks, is Victor okay? And I love that panel of Hellboy's face right there. I mean, that's just beautiful. You know, the shadow and the expression and everything. Just really fantastic work in this entire book by Reynolds. I can't say enough good things about it. And this panel is when I realized that Patrick Reynolds hasn't drawn Hellboy yet. He's done like a couple stories, but he actually hasn't been able to draw Hellboy. So maybe that's why it stood out to me so much. Margaret says that Victor can't shake his fever. He complains about nightmares and feeling hungry all the time. The doctors don't know what's wrong, but Thomas dismisses it. You pamper that boy too much, he says. And he's like sitting on the couch with a drink or whatever. He supposes that Victor is sick from a jungle bug from that monkey. He seems like a typical 1950s suburban douchebag. Right, yeah. Oh, that poor thing to be caught in the fire. Just tragic, Margaret says. Oh, Robert. And she kind of like laments on that. And they really focus in on her face here again. Fantastic emotional work here by Reynolds. You kind of get a sense that she that there's something else going on there. You know how we talk about like the the text sometimes, you know, and how it's like that full 
text bubble, but it's tiny. So it's right. like, you, know, you know, she's saying it under her breath. Right. Yeah. It's like she's saying it to herself and it's a private moment. So you just zoom in on her face. That is so smart. And so I love this next page as Zhang and Hellboy are just chilling out. They're waiting for something to happen. It is so good. Just their body language and everything. Hellboy's like, well, this is a whole lot of nothing. I, I like the, uh, the 1950s decor. Oh, yeah. You really get to see that. The living room is nicely laid out. Even the fridge in the uh, kitchen, you can see it's like that old school with the handle that you have to open up. Oh, yeah. Zhang says, she's going to go look around. Maybe I can pick something up. You do that, Hellboy says. I'll stay here and keep an eye on the couch. I love, again, his expression there. Suddenly, he hears a sound, and it's Victor. He comes out, and he says, I came to get my comic. I can't sleep. I bet. All this must be pretty rough on a kid your age. Weird stuff in the house, a death in the family. Your mom seems pretty shaken up about your uncle dying too. Yeah, I guess, Victor says. Uncle Robert was nice and all, but it's really Diogenes that I miss. When dad was away for work, me and mom used to visit Uncle Robert all the time. They'd go upstairs, and I'd get to play with Diogenes downstairs for hours. Oh, well, Hellboy says. You better get back to bed, kid. Don't want your mother to catch you up and about. Okay, I guess, Victor says. Yeah, but there's a lot in that scene, right? After this conversation, I was like, oh, I kind of think I know what happened. Right, (laughs) we're putting it together at the same time that Hellboy is. Yeah. We see Zhang go out to the car, and she's reaching for some items, and she's like trying to... I love to see this, like how she's trying, what her process is, and so she's like touching different things, trying to see if she'll get one of those visions. When I was reading this, I was imagining that she was about to touch something that she was like, there's a chance I'm going to get a rather sharp electrical static shock from this. And I just like imagined her like... Resi- like the resignation sure in her face as she's like uh went to touch it like because there's there's a thing at work that i know is going to give me huge static shock every time i deal with it oh and so <laughs> i i went to that place when i was reading this page and i was like oh she touches the gas canister and her eyes go yellow And so we get this flashback here. We see the monkey screaming and we see Thomas. He's like spraying gasoline all over this house. He says, this is all your fault. You made me do this, Robert. You always wanted what was mine ever since we were kids. But you can't have her. Not anymore. Wow, this is fucked up. I know. And we see the brother, Robert, and he's been like smashing the head with a hammer. Yeah, no. That's really messed up. And then we see Diogenes screaming and Thomas is lighting a match. On the next page, Zhang comes out of it. And she's like, oh, no. She runs up to Hellboy, who's now just laying out on the couch. She's like, Hellboy, Thomas kills his brother. He burned the house out of cover strikes. And Hellboy's like, what? <laughs> what? She says, it was the clearest vision I've had yet. The brother's pet is out for revenge, or its spirit is, anyway. Makes sense, Hellboy says. I'm pretty sure the wife was having an affair with the brother. Could be Thomas found out about it, and and then all of a sudden they hear a scream. You have to be in the BPRD to be able to say, yeah, it makes sense. Yeah. <laughs> what you just said makes perfect sense. So they run into the bedroom. I guess that's where the screaming was coming from. And we see the monkey there, the ghost monkey, and it's just tearing at into Thomas. And Margaret's screaming. Nice, right? This yeah, is, it's yeah. like, well, it's biting into him. It's gaining its revenge. It's good. Yeah. I like this. Hellboy's like, get off him. And he tries to swing in it, but it just goes through. The right hand of doom just passes right through it. Zhang says, almost like smoke. Ectoplasm, maybe? 
And Hellboy's like, yeah, ectoplasm. Yeah, he's a ghost monkey. Yeah, so, but I like that he, uh, the detective mind is working. He's like, it's ectoplasm, so it has to be coming from somebody. Yeah. And there's only one other person in this house. So he's like, stay with him, Sue. I got an idea. He runs over to Victor's room, and we see the kid there, and he's all possessed or something. I guess he doesn't have the, somehow there's a connection with him and the monkey. Yeah, I don't or know. the it's monkey is like, using his yeah. ectoplasm, because the ectoplasm has to come out of something. Yeah. You know what I mean? So, so part of him is not there, right? I guess. But let him though. Let him do it. Sure, <laughs> it's fine to let the monkey do that. And Hellboy goes over, and he wakes up the kid. And when he wakes him up, then the monkey dissipates, and it goes back into him. And so we kind of get this amazing work by Reynolds. It's almost like cinematic. Like you can oh, actually see really the monkey, kind of the tendrils of the ectoplasm pulling off of it as it drifts back and goes back into the boy. The mom is just like not having it. Right. And Thomas is dead. I mean, that dude is, he's he, yeah. he's not... He's not getting back up. No, it's fine. He killed his brother, and he killed a monkey. Yeah. And it looked like earlier, like his brother lived in an apartment complex, and so he probably killed a lot more people. Oh, yeah. Oh, right. You're right. They showed the fire from the outside. It was like a whole building. Yeah, you're right about that. fuck this guy. It's okay for (laughs) a ghost monkey to kill him in the comic book that we're reading. And then the kid's like, what's happening to me when he wakes up? It's okay, kid, Hellboy says. You're not alone. Yeah, and so we always get these moments where Hellboy, he's comforting these kids or, you know, I mean, that's part of his priority. Yeah. In the aftermath, we see the ambulance. It's one of these old school ones. Kind of looks like the Ghostbusters. There's another Ghostbusters reference. I was about to say, it looks like uh, the Ecto-1. Yeah. And they're, I guess they're loading up Thomas's body. It sure does. Margaret says, it's true, Robert and I had been having an affair. My husband never suspected a thing, but she left this love letter out. And then it disappeared, but he never said anything, so she just thought that she might have misplaced it. Then last month, I never imagined for a second that Thomas had anything to do with the fire, she says. And Patrick Reynolds, the faces and everything, I mean, this artist is gorgeous. Yeah, it's good. And on the little boy, they, they, we see the little boy sitting there on his bed, and on the wall there, there's a picture of the monkey that he drew. It says Diogenes. He also has this little toy fox. We saw him playing with it earlier. I thought it was interesting that they focus in on that. Because it's even, in the trade paperback version, they even use it as one of the chapter breaks, as him with that little fox. Zhang says, I know it must have come as a shock, but I can assure you I saw it myself. I get these flashes. But this thing, this ghost or spirit or whatever, Margaret says, it's still somehow connected to my son, right? And it killed my husband. There's no reason to believe that you're in any danger, Margaret, Jang says. The ghost monkey only seemed interested in your husband, Hellboy says, and his little, like, uh, his mannerism right there. What, Margaret asks? I'm not worried about my safety. What kind of mother do you think I am? I'm worried about my son. This fever, these nightmares. Now this thing is connected to him somehow? What if this keeps happening? How can I help him when I don't understand any of it? And Jang says, you know, that she's gone through a lot of those kind of experiences herself. It was terrifying at first, but somebody at the Bureau, Dr. Sanhu, helped her. She recently returned to the UK to conduct some research, and she plans to be there indefinitely. But if there is any way that she can help my son, Margaret says, I'm out of my depth here. Must be something you can do. And so Zhang and Hellboy, they just kind of look at each other. Oh, and then here we get that panel where the little boy has the fox. Victor, honey, Margaret comes in. Susan and Hellboy know of someone who might be able to help you with your, well, 
but you'd have to go alone. And so Hellboy comes up to him. We see Agent Jiang comforting Margaret, who's breaking down now, you know, actually thinking about having to let her son go. And Hellboy comes up to him. He says, I was in England last year, kid. I think you're going to love it. And then it ends right there. Yeah. It's really kind of sad for the mom because not only did she lose Robert and now her husband, but now she also is her child is going away. Yeah. It's just, the, that's just really sad to me. And, and and it is a good bit of writing because it's not just like we're focused on the paranormal thing. Like they really take time to like focus in on the mom. And there's even that line where she says like, I'm not worried about myself. I'm worried about my son, you know? And I just think that's really good character work. We're going to continue our stories from 1954 next week, but I do want to jump to the sketchbook section. If we could scroll over to 133 in the digital trade, we can kind of see some of Stephen Green's layouts for the Black Sun Lab. And so I really like this. He really like, in very painstaking detail, designed the whole lab. I always love it when we get to see them design the... I can't remember the artist right off the top of my head right now, but the one who did the layout for the Lobster Johnson base. How we always see it from like a like a different angle that you right know, actually in the comic but it's like laying it out so you know where all the all the oh things yeah are. yeah yeah tanchi zanich is what you're thinking of thank he you he's a program or something right like an architect i think program. so i think he works in a program here but yeah stephen green like he just totally drafted this yeah, which drafted is really cool it's pretty sweet and we also see uh stephen green did a version of johan when he's got all that stuff on his back from the dead so i really love that i love seeing the behind the scenes work or little sketches that they did for fun that the backpacks that the nazis were wearing were kind of reminiscent of that one we also get the little layouts of the inside of the ufo i've met stephen green through his mentor sean murphy at north carolina comic-con it took a little while before we were able to line up a job for him but after the two-parter here, Arcudi requested him for a Lobster Johnson one-shot. In these designs, Stephen pushed to make the inside of the flying saucer claustrophobic. And so we can kind of see that here. It's really cool. I, I love seeing this kind of thing. We also see Patrick Reynolds, some head sketches of Hellboy. Patrick Reynolds' comic debut was a backup in the 2009 issue of Hellboy the Wild Hunt. And he's done other work with Mignola, including a long run on Joe Gollum. But this was his first time drawing Hellboy. And we also get some examples of the layouts here. And the pencils by Reynolds are really amazing. And then I also want to point out... This variant cover, so there is a nerd block variant cover of the Unreasoning Beast. I actually don't have this cover. It's by Eric Kennett. He works as an artist in comics, animation, and video games. His past work includes Iron Man Enter the Mandarin for Marvel, Tron Uprising for Disney, and League of Legends for Riot Games. His most recent offerings in comics is called Run, Love, Kill, which he co-wrote. Yeah, so that's a cool cover back there. I like that one. All right, excellent. Another awesome book club episode. I can't wait to listen to all the listener feedback, and maybe we'll have a uh, maybe we'll have one of our familiar guests on for next week for one of our one of the stories that we're going to be covering for that. So I hope you guys will join us then. And now Aubrey's going to say all the things. All right, everybody, sure, sure. It's awesome. Hellboy in the BPRD, nineteen fifty-four. Black Sun and the Unreasoning Beast. You can send us a hey, you damn guys at hellboybookclub at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook at Hellboy Book Club Podcast and on Instagram and Twitter at Hellboy Book Club. You can also find all of our resources on our Facebook About section and our Podbean website. And 
as always, a thank you to Paul from Gotterhorn. That song is fucking beautiful. We love it. And always thank you to Mark Trudell for helping out with the reading list. John for all of the magic that he performs to make us sound amazing. You can find the podcast on Podbean, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. Next week, we are continuing with Hellboy and the BPRD 1954 and reading the stories, Ghost Moon, The Mirror, and Who the Hell is Lady Cynthia? So you know what to do. Pull out them backies, pull out them trades, get the digitals, get an omnibus, use your psychic powers and <laughs> pull the stories right out of Mignola's head. But don't cheat, don't spoil yourself, only get the stuff that's already been printed. <laughs> Check out our raffle on uh, the GoFundMe. You can find the, that on our uh, Facebook page. Uh, donate if you can. If you can't, we understand. And join us next week on the Hellboy Book Club podcast. Thanks a lot for listening, everybody. And thank you for all your donations. My name's John Salinas. I'm Danielle. And I'm Robbie Lowe saying, trust me, Woody. <laughs> the guy Farrier, his name was Woody. Oh, yeah. And Hellboy said, trust me, Woody. Danielle Neal. Yeah. <laughs>